We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seen as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Ah, yes, dignity. Dignity and war and war-making doesn't seem to generally go together. I know sometimes war is painted as glorious, but it is not. And having tremendous weaponry and power doesn't necessarily ensure any kind of victory. A pink flower has beaten the world's only superpower. Our guest on today's Keeping Democracy Alive puts it this way. After fighting the longest war in its history, the United States stands at the brink of defeat in Afghanistan. How can this be possible? How could the world's sole superpower have battled continuously for 15 years, deploying 100,000 of its finest troops, sacrificing the lives of 2,200 of those soldiers, spending more than a trillion dollars on its military operations, lavishing a record $100 billion more on so-called nation-building and reconstruction, helping raise, fund, and equip and train an army of 350,000 Afghan allies, and still not be able to pacify one of the world's most impoverished nations. End of quote. As one who very deeply lived through the Vietnam War, I cannot help but be reminded of many aspects of that clearly avoidable disaster which so needlessly caused the loss of so many lives and limbs and did great harm to America in so many ways. As the inevitability of our defeat in Vietnam became unmistakable, America began to be seen as a pitiful, helpless giant. While our war in Afghanistan has faded from daily headlines, the reality on the ground is that as the word winning is currently defined, the United States cannot win in Afghanistan. Why is this? What better alternative is actually achievable? How did a pink flower defeat the mightiest military in the world? Very pleased to have back on the show our guest, Alfred McCoy, the J.R.W. Small Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, author of A Question of Torture, among other works. His most recent book is Policing America's Empire, the United States, the Philippines, and the Rise of the Surveillance State. Uh, Thank you very much uh, uh, for being with us. Al McCoy. Hi, Denver. It seems fairly evident that America is just not at all winning in our war in Afghanistan. Churchill is said to have called Afghanistan the graveyard of empires. It's clearly not because they're so well-armed and organized. 
What is it about the importance of the growing of opium poppies in the culture of Afghanistan that makes the country so hard to crack for big powers like Britain, the Soviet Union, and now America? How, what is the power of this pink flower, this opium poppy? It's a combination of two things. One is that Afghanistan has never had a strong central state that achieved the, what Max Weber, the famous German social theorist, called a monopoly on violence, which he said is the requirement of any modern state. So what you have is a series of localized communities, villages, clans, and families that have a long tradition of fighting for basically honor in the locality and against any kind of foreign invader. So in the late 19th century, <clears throat> Great Britain uh, created the port of, of Karachi. They built a rail network across modern-day Pakistan. They launched 40 military operations into the, the hills of Pakistan. All of them ended in defeat. One of their interventions, in which they occupied Kabul and retreated, the Pashtun tribes uh, surrounded the British military forces. They slaughtered everybody except for one medical doctor who they allowed to ride out on a horse so that he could tell the tale of the slaughter. Uh, the Soviet Union, of course, then a, a very powerful global empire, intervened in Afghanistan for 10 years in the 1980s, and the CIA very skillfully unleashed that uh, Pashtun violence, gave it a kind of gloss of Islam, and uh, drove the Soviet Red Army out of Afghanistan. In, in our case, there's a second factor. Uh, that's the opium. Now, it's important to understand that when we intervened in, in, in Afghanistan, Back in, in October, November 2001, the combination of our mobilization of warlords, uh, the Northern Alliance in the countries northeast, the Pashtun drug lords come warlords in the southeast, backed by just a, a handful of American uh, Green Berets and Special Operation Forces uh, to guide American air power. And that lethal air power smashed the Taliban. That government collapsed with amazing speed. Yes. That movement was broken. Those guerrilla fighters really returned to their villages and gave up the struggle. It was over. We had we beaten the Taliban. They were they were broken, and from that that beginning, in which the Taliban broke, they have completely rebuilt. According to the United Nations, which has offices across the country, the Taliban now control over half the rural districts in the country, and, and they, last year, 2015, the fighting season, the Taliban scored uh, an amazing victory. They, they marched into the northern city of Kunduz. Uh, a handful, literally a handful of Taliban fighters drove away major uh, Afghan military forces. They occupied the city for two weeks. And they're now running a sustained offensive in the south, the heroin heartland of yeah. Afghanistan, Helmand province. Uh, they've recently captured three major opium-producing districts, they're well on their way to occupying the entire province. The United States is now going to be sending combat forces back into Helmand province in a bid to stop the Taliban. Right, right. Well, before we became the occupiers, the Soviet Union was there. And you write that the CIA's secret war in the early 1980s actually did much to help 
the expansion of the global heroin trade. And heroin is a huge problem. Though it was uh, clearly not intentional, I don't think it was intentional, how did our CIA help the expansion of the global heroin trade? Well, it's important to understand that uh, in 1979, when the United States uh, backed them, which had the Afghan Islamic guerrillas against the Soviet occupation, uh, this was part of a grand strategy by Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Zygmunt Brzezinski, of using Islam and driving like a, a heart, uh, like a, a spear into the heart of the Soviet Empire and break the Soviet Empire. Uh-huh. And uh, the CIA invested substantial funds, but nowhere near enough money to actually mobilize and sustain this massive resistance operation. Afghanistan had long been a, a, an opium producer, producing about 100 tons of opium a year for regional markets, um, basically Iran. Iran has an insatiable appetite for smoking opium. Hmm. And uh, <clears throat> so the, the, the seeds and the, the cultivation was, was on the ground. But Afghanistan then had an extremely diversified economy. Right. Uh, some 60 field crops, elaborate snowmelt irrigation systems, um, very elaborate herding, the moving of flocks from winter pasture to summer pasture off across enormous distances of the country. And, and uh, this very sophisticated but very delicate balance of animals for protein and food crops for uh, for nutrition and carbohydrate, was very delicately poised in this arid terrain. And so when the Soviet army swept in and started using their helicopters, flying over villages and blasting away at the orchards, uh, uh, which contained uh, trees that allow the Afghan peasantry to survive drought, one mulberry tree will allow one human being to survive for one year during the drought. The trees were deep and survived drought. Uh, they devastated this 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 uh, very very delicate agricultural system, mm. and the uh, the opium poppy was the solution. It's an annual crop. Uh, it uh, takes much less water than wheat. Uh, it's labor intensive. So as a labor was displaced from traditional agriculture and herding, the first thing to go in any kind of social dis- uh, uh, social conflict, uh, uh, the protein marches on fo- on four hooves. Uh, soldiers on all sides steal the sheep, the goats, and, and the cattle. Mm. Uh, so the herds disappeared. Uh, the fields were no longer planted. The, the snowmelt irrigation system was smashed in the conflict, and the opium poppy prospered. And there was a 20-fold increase in opium production from 100 tons in 1979 to 2,000 tons by 1989. Moreover, the impact on the region was enormous. In 1979, according to Pakistan government statistics, that country had zero heroin addicts. There was no heroin processing in Central Asia. Uh, by 1985, they were up to 1,300,000 heroin addicts, probably the oh. biggest addict population in the world. So they went from zero to the biggest. Wow. Moreover, uh, the Afghan-Pakistan borderlands, because the heroin labs were inside the northwest frontier province of Pakistan, uh, became the epicenter of the global heroin trade. And uh, by 1984, Pakistan's uh, heroin labs uh, with the Afghan opium was producing about 65% of U.S. heroin supply and about 75% of the European heroin supply. Uh, So it became the epicenter of the global drug trade during the secret war. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, 
the CIA turned a blind eye to the involvement of their Afghan allies. The number one CIA asset in this war was a, a warlord named Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. Uh, he was the biggest uh, heroin manufacturer. The Washington Post ran an expose in 1990 when the operation was winding down, and they they said that uh, Gulbuddin Hekmatyar uh, was running at least uh, six heroin labs. He was the biggest producer among the Mujahideen guerrillas. Uh, and the Pakistan, our ally, the CIA, cut out its its intermediate agency in, in arming and deploying the Afghan guerrillas was the Pakistan Inter-Service Intelligence, or ISI. Mm-hmm. Their leadership became very heavily involved in the drug traffic. And the CIA turned a blind eye to that as well. Uh, uh, so, <coughs> In effect, uh, our intervention, combined with the disruption of the war, transformed uh, Afghanistan into the epicenter of, of the global heroin trade. Wow. So the crops were wiped out. They had been interesting, a, a, a thriving uh, agricultural uh, economy for a long time. And then because of the Soviet war and then our war, just to survive, people's ability to survive and feed their families, it sounds like they're, that was they were forced into it. There really wasn't much choice. The, 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 also, the, the war was incredibly disruptive. The estimates, depending on time, range from, again, we don't even know the population of Afghanistan. I think nobody has a clue. Hmm. But it's somewhere, at the time of the war, was somewhere on the order of about 24, 25 million people. Of that, 3 to 5 million people became refugees. Uh, and when the war was over in 1989, people began returning home. They returned home to orchards that were, were, were shot to pieces, herds that, you know, that were, were gone. And the reproduction of a herd, you know, large, oh, yeah. large, large animals reproduce maybe one or two uh, offspring a, a season. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's arithmetic increase. Yeah. Uh, and moreover, they, there hadn't been planting, so the seed stocks were gone. You know, seeds that had evolved over the centuries that were ecologically adapted to the climate and the soil, the seed stocks were wiped out. Agriculture was, was ravaged. And people needed a crop they could put in the sure. ground and, and get a harvest in one year. And the other thing was, you have to remember, under the Taliban, there are only three nations on the world that recognize the Taliban. And agricultural products uh, require treaties that, that, that gain access to markets. <laughs> so, uh, well, when you're producing an illicit commodity, you don't need treaties. Right. Uh, so that, you know, this this was the, if you will, the sharp knife that cut through the Gordian knot of, of, of wow. Afghanistan's post-war reconstruction. Wow. And then once that war was over, in 19, well, basically by the Soviet Union and the United States, the CIA, we got out of there between 1991 and 92. And then uh, the Civil War started, and uh, that uh, it was bitter fighting on both sides. Gobadin Hekmachar, the CIA's asset during the secret war, made a bid to capture the capital. He lined up artillery, shelled the capital, killed about 50,000 people. He, mm. he failed. In the midst of that chaos, the Taliban came to power. Well, during the civil war of the 1990s, while this fighting was raging, again, the peasants needed a crop. They needed to survive. Yeah, yeah. The villagers had to plant and produce. And the opium crop doubled from 2,000 tons to about 4,000 tons during the fighting of the 1990s. When the Taliban came into power, um, Islam is very harsh on alcohol. It has no prohibition on on Uh drugs, uh hashish or opium. Uh 
Uh-huh. So well, the Taliban actually legalized heroin manufacturing and opium cultivation. They organized it. They systematized it. It became the source of the country's foreign exchange, uh, the major source of revenues for the Taliban government, and the major source of employment for the peasant population. Well, so by 1999, uh, Afghanistan was up to 4,600 tons of opium, producing about 90% of the world's heroin. And then the Taliban made a really bizarre decision. Yeah, I was going to ask about that in July tw- 2000. Tell us about right. that. Yeah, they, they, there are only three nations in the world that recognize them diplomatically. So they sent their deputy foreign minister to New York to the opening of the UN General Assembly in order to make a bid for diplomatic recognition by the community of nations to be seated and recognized. And in order to do that, they conducted a radical opium eradication program. Now, after their bumper 1999 crop, 2000, a drought hit the country, so the crop dropped around about, about, down to about 3,300 tons. Then the Taliban, which, you know, they were brutal and, and ruthless in their repression, they ordered an opium eradication and they eliminated in excess of 90% of the country's heroin production, heroin, sorry, and opium cultivation. Opium cultivation, or heroin, conduct, heroin production, disappeared completely. Uh, and opium cultivation went from 3,300 tons down to 180 tons, uh, you know, basically down to that very small level that it had been at the start of the secret war. Uh, and uh, that, they, did that in two, they did that in 2000, uh, and then a year later, of course, 9-11 happened and the U.S. invaded. Right. And uh, observers were stunned by the ease with which we were able to overthrow the Taliban, the way that it seemed to sort of to, to collapse with the first American bomb right. and had no capacity for resistance. This was this you know, deeply rooted, radical Islamic government that just, just folded. And my explanation for it is, of course, uh, they, they had conducted economic suicide. By making their economy dependent on opium from 1996 to 2000 and then abolishing opium, uh, the country was impoverished. This was the source of employment and income uh, for, for millions of peasants. 15% of the population, the UN estimates, were directly involved in the drug trade with lots of casual labor for planting and harvesting uh, and processing and shipment. Uh, it was the country's major product. They wiped it out, and they destroyed what was little left of their economy. So when the U.S. invaded, the Taliban was basically a hollow shell that shattered at the first American bomb. So they had to get back into it, it sounds like. Uh, and, and you write that, uh, if you just tuned in to Keeping Democracy Live, Bert Cohen here, our guest today is uh, Alfred McCoy, uh, professor of history at University of Wisconsin-Madison uh, writer of many books, Question of Torture, and uh, among many other works. Now, you write that there are a great many ways by which the opium business, after they made it illegal, then suddenly helped grow the Taliban very much. I wonder if you could tell us about, uh, about that. Sure. First of all, the, the U.S., when we uh, overthrew the Taliban, what happened was the CIA bundled up $100 bills, U.S. greenbacks, put them on pallets, and literally shipped $70 million into the northeast of uh, Afghanistan and the southeast, and they handed out the cash to the warlords, who were also drug lords. And, 
you know, backed them with U.S. air power, and so as the Taliban collapsed, the warlords advanced and captured control of the of the cities and the countryside. And uh, uh, again, the, the there was no economic reconstruction. The peasants uh, were were impoverished. They needed a crop, and uh, they had the seed for, for from the opium harvest, from past sure. opium harvest that they were holding. Yeah, and so they they, they the, the warlords, our warlords, presided over a rapid uh, expansion of opium planting. So in the first year of the U.S. occupation, the opium harvest surged from 180 tons as a result of the Taliban's uh, prohibition. It surged back to, to 3,400 tons. And according to the U.N., that was 62% of the gross domestic product of Afghanistan. you got to understand, this had never happened before in the history of the world. We all know that back in the 1980s, when uh, when cocaine dominated, right. the seemed to dominate the Colombian economy and politics, producing these incredibly powerful cartels and cartel bosses, these people of almost now cinematic legend, mm, Pablo yep. Escobar, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the cicateros, the, the assassins employed by the cartels, were gunning people down. The cartels at one point actually occupied the... Ministry of Justice in the capital, right? Well, at that point, you know, at the peak of the cocaine crack at the United States, Colombia's uh, economy was still a very lively, diverse economy. Uh -huh. Cocaine only represented 3% hmm. of Colombia's economy, right? At the peak of the crack cocaine epidemic. Well, this is 62%. This means that everybody is directly, directly implicated in the trade. Hmm. And you talk about uh, President Obama's launch of a new war strategy after you know he promised to get us out on February third, twenty ten. What is the significance of where the launch occurred? The town of Marja. <laughs> well, Marja is one of three districts in Helmand Province. Helmand produces uh, in any given year about forty percent of the world's heroin. Okay, not <laughs> Afghanistan. One town. Half of Afghanistan's opium and heroin. And that becomes about 40% of the world's heroin supply. Marja is one of the three main opium heroin districts. All right, so in the U.S., you know, when under General McChrystal, sent in the Marines to occupy Marja, they were marching through poppy fields, you know, past opium lambs into the, the heart of the global heroin trade. And, and actually what's happened now uh, in, in the current Taliban offensive, uh, the... Uh, Government forces are retreating from Marja. They've been forced out. The Taliban are now actually literally fighting for control of the poppy fields and the heroin labs. And they're desperately struggling right now in a massive offensive to capture Helmand, which is the heart of the Afghan and the global heroin trade, and to use that to finance the continued expansion uh, of, of their army. Every, every spring, when the poppy springs from the soil, all right, another thing happens. The Taliban recruits a new crop of teenage fighters from right. the villages. Right. Right. And they offer $300 a month to every fighter. Where do they get the money? They get the money from basically one major source, heroin trafficking. The Taliban, according to a recent report that came out actually just last month from the UN Security Council, is involved in every single aspect of the heroin trade. They control the poppy fields. They fight, literally, they have combat operations to capture control of the heroin labs, and they protect the export traffic out of the country's borders into Pakistan, into Tajikistan, 
and into world markets beyond. They're the dominant force in the heroin trade. And the UN has said that they've become really, they're really more like a drug cartel than they are mm. a guerrilla movement these days. Anyway, it's that drug operation. And, and the current head of the Taliban, who replaced Mullah Amor, uh, Amar, is a guy named uh, Mullah Mansour. And he got his start as, an, uh, as a, the Taliban's drug guy. He was the man that built up the heroin trade and the opium trade you know, captured it for the Taliban, and then used that to systematically rebuild the Taliban from a destroyed government with no armed capacity whatsoever into this powerful guerrilla force that now controls over half the country and is fighting to capture districts in the north, the northeast, the west, and the south. Wow, it doesn't doesn't sound real hopeful, I have to say. And uh, obviously, I mean, you know, in Vietnam, we did the whole uh, wiping out crops thing. That couldn't I mean, happen. We could chemically do it, I suppose, but that would not... Oh, be- look, the, the U.S. has proposed this several times, okay? One thing, if you, if, you, um, if you look at my article, right, and you go click the URLs for those U.N. drug reports that I cite there, mm-hmm. each one of them has a beautiful panoramic photograph of an of opium fields in Afghanistan in full flower with all the pink and white flowers, mm-hmm. and uh, it's not like Colombia, uh, or, uh, where what happened is the FARC guerrillas in Colombia would put the coca trees, uh, the coca plants right. beneath other trees. They would hide them uh, beneath overhanging boughs, yeah. so that it was difficult to get to them because this is a you know a rich tropical jungle. Yeah. Well, Afghanistan's an arid terrain. Right. So you right? can't miss it. The poppy. <laughs> The poppy flowers stand out. They are pink and white against brown. You can't miss them. There are <laughs> yeah. no trees surrounding the field. But wiping them out would do nothing. I mean, what? it sounds like wiping them out, you know, bombing them chemically would, would not achieve really any goal at all except making more people angry. And I know you don't have a lot of time left, but I, you know, we have to look at changing our policy somehow. And I know that's very, very difficult to do, change American policy. But you write the quote, we can help renew this ancient arid land by investing a small portion of all that misspent military funding in rural Afghanistan, that rural Afghanistan could produce economic alternatives for the millions of farmers who depend on the opium crop for employment. What could that money uh, go for if we were to change policy? I mean, this is clearly a losing, impossible policy that we have. What would be a better alternative if you were in charge of uh, American policy and uh, budgeting for Afghanistan? Look, this is an extraordinary difficult circumstance now, okay? Right now, the United States is, is reaping the rewards of a, what is it, uh, 40-year policy of intervention in Afghanistan, uh, right? Mm-hmm. That's nearly 40-year policy of intervention in Afghanistan from uh, secret war of the, of the 1970s through backing one side in the civil war of the 1990s and then our intervention since 2001. And this is layer upon layer of, of short-term tactical gains that mm-hmm. produced an ever-denser Gordian knot of a social economic problem. We're now to the point where there are no easy solutions. Right. There are no quick and sure fixes. Right? So that's, let's, let's, let's be cautious yeah. here. I mean, right now, if we try and <clears throat> introduce socioeconomic reforms, rebuild infrastructure, uh, rebuild the, 
uh, the conventional agricultural economy in Afghanistan without security, well, that's not going to work very well. Uh, Once we emphasize sufficient security, it turns out the military will take over the operation as they always do, Mm. and the (laughs) development programs will get pushed aside. So, you know, in general, what you can say at this point is we need to recognize that the military solutions have not worked. We have underinvested in rural reconstruction, right? And that, the investment such as we've done it has been extremely inefficient. Uh, John Sopko, the U.S. inspector for Afghanistan, a, man, a position created by the U.S. Congress, makes regular reports on the incredible waste of our development programs. Yes. Now, uh, this is one of those situations in which this is an allied operation. The military operation has been allied. The development operation is allied. This is one of those circumstances where I think if we worked at a multilateral level mm. and took advantage of the development expertise that you find, let's say, among Japanese and the European Union nations yeah. who, are, mm. have, who have people that build careers and are used to working in, in remote rural communities and trying slowly over a period of time to rebuild the fabric of a society, that this would take far less money than our military operations, and have a greater chance of success. Because mm. we never uh, seem that, to... That, 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 at this point, Bert, that's about the best we can do, I think, is hope for improvement. Not, you know, right now we're, we're on, a, uh, we're on a, 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 a very rapid decline, okay? Yeah. Where the Taliban is likely to take control over most of the countryside, yeah. And who knows, in the fullness of time, maybe even seize power again. And that would be unfortunate yeah. uh, for the people of Afghanistan. Well, the Taliban are, um, have, have proven themselves during their three years and four years in power to be basically a really incompetent uh, government that offered very little uh, to the people of Afghanistan. Well, so I think their victory would be unfortunate from any perspective. Well, we will see. Not just in terms of U.S. policy. Okay? It would be very unfortunate for the people of Afghanistan. Very unfortunate. I cannot imagine. Well, I know you have to run. Thank you so much for your time. If people are interested in following up your work, is there a website to which you can point them? Yeah, sure. Just uh, Huffington Post, which is very accessible. They yes. have the article. And Tom Dispatch. Oh, yes. uh, if you type in my name and Tom, Tom Dispatch, really easy to remember, they can get the article. Uh, and... Um, the article in Tom Dispatch has got uh, all the sources are hyperlinked, not to, not just to, to the to the footnote, but the actual full text. You can read the UN reports, the UN Security Council reports on, online on the rise of the Taliban. I've got the URL right there. You click it, you get the full text of the report. So it's a it's an interesting kind of footnote. Indeed, uh, not just the reference, but the actual information right there. This guy knows his stuff. I wish more people in American government actually knew their stuff. Thank you so much, Al McCoy, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. We'll be back in just a minute. From your masters of war You that build the big guns You that build the death planes I want you to know I can read through your mask. 
never done nothing but build to destroy. You play with my world like it's your own little toy. You put a gun in my hand and you hide from my eyes. Then you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly. Judas of old You lie and deceive Where a war can be won You won't need to believe But I see through your eyes And I see through your brain Like I see through the water That runs down my drain Oh, yeah, still true, The Masters of War from 1963. We're going to switch gears just a little bit. We Americans are both a nation of immigrants and a nation with a history of anti-immigrant sentiment. Throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, there have been nativist movements aimed at protecting the dominance of white Christian males. We're seeing it today in the Trump campaign based on fear of the other. But I have always found that once people actually get to know people whose race or ethnic identity they started out fearing, the fear disappears and neighborliness actually begins. In addition to this fear of others, Americans these days feel isolated. The sense of community which our founders sought to bolster is largely vanished. People are hungry for that sense of community. You see where we're going here? In her new book, Integration Nation, Immigrants, Refugees, and America at Its Best. From her cross-country journey across America, our guest, author Susan Eaton, points to a common solution to both problems, immigration and isolation. Susan Eaton, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy oh, Alive. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me, Bert. Oh, sure. Susan Eaton is a professor of the practice and director of the Sillerman Center for the Advancement of Philanthropy at Brandeis University's Heller School for Social Policy. Boy, that's a long title and management. <laughs> <laughs> Her previous titles include The Children in Room E4, American Education on Trial. The Other Boston Busing Story, What's Won and Lost Across the Boundary Line, and with Gary Orfield, Dismantling Desegregation, The Quiet Reversal of Brown versus Board of Education. Interesting stuff. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Boston Globe, Sunday Magazine, The Nation, and many other publications. How did the idea for this book come about? What was your purpose in writing it? Well, the idea for the book uh, it came about because I was watching... Uh, coverage of the uh, SB 1070, the passage of the SB 1070 law in Arizona, mm-hmm. and the media's kind of unrelenting focus on immigration and the conflict that it creates. And it seemed to me that the story started out as, oh, there are more and more immigrants coming to our country, and there's conflict. And then the stories ended without any kind of satisfying resolution. And at the same time that the Arizona mess was going on, I was engaged in a research project um, for a couple of foundations that wanted to understand better how immigration was playing out in particular in particular local communities. And the story that I was finding there was quite different than the one that was broadcast across the country on cable networks about conflict and hatred. But it was about ordinary people uh, working alongside immigrants, collaborating with immigrants, assisting immigrants where needed, 
figuring out what kind of assets immigrants bring to the community and trying to tap into those all across the country, being welcoming, putting in place programs and policies, creating public spaces so people who are immigrants could come together with people who aren't immigrants and get to know one another and the ways that you kind of talked about in your introduction. And so I wanted to tell that side of the story, um, not because I think we need to not pay attention to xenophobic racists like Donald Trump and the policies that they spawn, but because we also at the same time need an affirmative path forward beyond that type of um, stupidity and, um, you know, nastiness. Yeah, it sure is both stupid and nasty. And, you know, it's yeah, funny. I how- mean, that's why I wanted to title my book, Stop Being Mean and Stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, would that be a uh, heavy lift? My goodness. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but my boy. publisher convinced me otherwise. <laughs> Probably a good <laughs> idea. No doubt about, yeah. about it. America is changing. And with change comes resistance to change through the vehicle of the Trump campaign. What had been simmering xenophobia is now at the surface. Some right-wingers don't like the rapid cultural transformation they see and are determined to turn back the clock to an imaginary age of white Anglo-Saxon male dominance and control. It's a nice, you know, it's, it's an image, but it's not real. Historically, what has been the reality of immigration and the successful absorption of these new citizens? And, and you know, this fear of cultural change, how has it really worked out? Um, yes, I mean, generally speaking, immigrants have come to the country in various times in our history and have, like, as you as you implied, both absorbed kind of the 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 kind of prevailing cultures, dominant cultures here, absorbed things about those, and then also we've been influenced and affected by immigrants. I mean, just think about oh, yeah. the food we eat, the Absolutely. clothes we wear, the music we listen to, all of those things. I mean, we are not a static country. We are not a static culture. We are always evolving, and immigration adds a kind of uh, dynamism to to that process. So, but generally speaking, yeah. Yes, immigrants have come here and within a couple of generations yeah. found more or less uh, success within our, within our country. And that success is borne out economically, educationally, and that is a success that is a benefit not just to immigrants, but of course to all of us, because Absolutely. we all live in this country together. So if an immigrant family is prosperous, uh, then they have more resources to spend in the local community. Right. Um, they're better able to support their children in school so that the children succeed and that the children go on and earn wages and contribute to tax revenues, become civically engaged, become committed to the community, feel like they have a stake and they belong in a place and really? try to make it a better mm-hmm. place. There's enormous numbers of stories about this, and the newest generation of immigrants, the large majority of whom are Latino immigrants, but also increasingly Asian immigrants, um, the story is is similar, but at the same time, we also see areas of challenge where, and that makes it even more important to be proactive about immigration and to be affirmative and to think about what kinds of policies we need, what kinds of programs we need, practices, one-to-one engagement, 
that we need to make sure that, that we can all be successful. If you just tuned in, Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Our guest today is Susan Eaton. Her new book is Integration Nation, Immigrants, Refugees, and America at its best. What do you say to people who proclaim, back in my day, you know it's going to come, people who came to this country, learned English, left their old customs behind, and worked hard to become Americans? What do you say to them? Yeah, absolutely. And so what, um, so first of all, immigrants who come here who have the opportunity do work hard to learn English. I have never met an immigrant who did not want to learn English. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the statistics are borne out, the research is borne out that after one and one and a half generations, almost everybody is speaking English fluently. And sadly, large shares of immigrant populations begin to lose their native language, which is actually turns out to be a quite a negative thing for Definitely. a variety of reasons. Definitely. Um, and so there is this kind of myth that immigrants used to come here and they used to shed all of their culture, but it's just not true. I mean, even in my neighborhood, I see around St. Patrick's Day, to people putting up Irish flags. I mean, people who, I live in Boston, who have not, ever been to Ireland. You know, I mean and so it's a I think that that it that it's that what happens is that people people retain some sense of ethnic identity of when they can identify with that identity. Um but yes, but over time they become more and more they do begin to identify with American culture or being an American. All of those things are still happening. Oh, yeah. It's just that there's an increasing awareness I think uh. of why it's important to respect people's culture, the culture that they bring there, learn from those cultures, and understand the contributions that those very distinct, uh, valuable cultures bring bring to our country as well. Absolutely. And to me, there's no question these other cultures greatly enrich us. I mean, you know, the food, I, w- I would hate to just eat, uh, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant official food, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I get a little tired of white bread. That would be bad. That would be bad. <laughs> w- w- I'm curious why it makes sense that you found that the big city mayors were among the first champions of immigration. What common urban problem or problems does proactive integration uh, promise to solve. And, and and tell us about the term, if you would, please, proactive integration. Sure. So, yes, it's interesting to, to learn about big city mayors. Big city mayors were among the first to kind of go out at, which at the time, around 2010 and some even earlier, and say, look, immigration is a positive thing for our cities. Not only do we want to be uh, helpful and kind and welcoming to the immigrants who are already here, but we actually really are in a position of needing to attract more immigrants and figuring out how to make our city a place where immigrants want to stay, where they can thrive and raise their families. Um, And in large part, that was because of a population decline that a lot of American cities were experiencing. If you look, for example, at at the Northeast, um, many of our many of the cities in the Northeast, or many just the states in the Northeast, all of the growth, or nearly all of the growth that is occurring in those places, is due to immigration. Mm. People of mm-hmm. color, mm-hmm. Um, more specifically, um, account for ninety-two percent of the growth from two thousand and twenty uh, two from two thousand to twenty ten in the Northeast. And so, big city mayors. It's not that big city mayors necessarily only saw immigrants as a way to solve some kind of economic problem. Um, but they did understand, wow, um, you know, we, we are uniquely positioned to embrace 
diversity in this place. We have a history of diversity, um, and we are a place that could really attract large numbers of immigrants. And when you have a population decline and you're losing people, that means you're losing tax revenues. It means there's fewer people to invest in local businesses. It means that smaller businesses aren't going to be prosperous. Um, and what a place! What the what the city of Philadelphia, for example, under its mayor Michael Nutter, and it then mayor Michael Nutter, that. and now Mayor James Kenney, who was on the city council and was also out front on the issue of welcoming immigrants, they for the first time, I believe it was in 2011, saw an increase in their population, and it was due to immigration. You see wide areas of the city that had been kind of given up on and shuttered in a lot of places, really the lights turning back on in some of those older ethnic, white ethnic strongholds, full of new immigrants opening up businesses, working alongside older generations of um, Italian immigrants, for example, in Philadelphia, and the city working in partnership with some very innovative nonprofits to make it easier to open a business, a small business in Philadelphia, so people can cut through the red tape, to make it easier for people who don't yet speak English to get the city services and to be engaged in a civic way in the social and civic life of, of the city. Um, increasingly, we're seeing, especially this is true of uh, Latino, some Latino and Asian groups, where they're skipping that traditional step of immigrants, where they used to first come to the city and then move out, like, you know, all the white people right, did, right, right, <laughs> to right. the suburbs. Yes. Um, they're actually starting in the suburban communities. And so cities, I think, are seeing, oh, wow, you know, this is actually something we would like to change. We want, we want those folks. We want to you know, provide a, provide a home and a, a welcome community for them. Interesting, interesting. Revitalizing the cities. What a concept. Uh, <laughs> and you, you did uh, a lot of your book, Integration Nation, is about a uh, cross-country journey. Tell us, please, about Heber City in Mormon, Utah. Yeah, this is a, one of my favorite stories. Uh, so in 2002, as you might remember, the state of Utah, specifically Salt Lake City, was the site for the Olympics with Mitt Romney kind of running the show there. And Utah was, in large part, a rural state, and it needed uh, some assistance in kind of beefing up and improving the infrastructure of the state and also building stadiums and the kinds of facilities that they would need to make a successful Olympics. So as a result, there were a large number of jobs that were created, and these jobs attracted large numbers of Latino immigrants, mostly with roots in Mexico and in Guatemala, who were living already in western states, either California or Nevada or places that already had a kind of longer-standing immigrant population, began moving to Utah for this work. And what happened after 2002 really surprised a lot of people, was that large numbers of the immigrants who came for the jobs decided to stay. They found work in a, in, in a booming recreation industry or in the service industries or in the restaurants in the area, uh, and they decided to stay and raise their families. So this meant that... Oh, that, that a lot of towns in Utah that had not only been historically all white for generations, but historically Mormon, um, almost all Mormon for generations, these were not di- very diverse places. Yeah, really. Suddenly large shares of Latinos living there. And the schools, this is where the population of Latinos was even more pronounced because it tends to be a much younger population. And so educators did what educators across the country tend to do, 
is they began to separate the students who could speak English from the students who could not yet speak English, who were speaking Spanish. And they ran these kinds of parallel school systems. And educators at the local level started to think, you know, this is just not working out. There's no sense of connectedness or cohesion Mm. or... Uh, social ability within the schools. The Latino students aren't succeeding because they aren't getting the subject matter knowledge. They're just learning English. They're just focusing so much on learning English that they're missing out on math and social studies, like the the kinds of things that the other kids were getting. And so at the same time that local educators were saying we need to come up with an alternative, at the state level, legislators were making funds available for school districts to put in place language learning programs. And so the educators on the local level got creative, and they said, let's create, a, let's create a program, like programs that exist, have existed in places like California and Massachusetts and New York for decades, where we bring Spanish-speaking children and English-speaking children together, and they'll actually learn in two languages. They'll each learn each other's language. Mm-hmm. Each language has an equal status. Everyone will be getting their subject matter knowledge, and it will be a benefit for everybody. And so they did this. And there was some tension in the particular case of Heber City, which I focused on within the community, people not understanding what was going on or not approving of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then over time, as educators explained what was happening, the programs became incredibly popular. Mm. There's now, I think, 25 of these two-way immersion programs across the state of Utah. Almost all of them have waiting lists. And they're incredibly popular among both the Spanish-speaking families and the English-speaking families. And Integration. What a concept. Integration. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, they have very, and they have very strong support among the Republican legislature as well. Whoa. That is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. Well, no, it's a, it's a good story. That is a good story. And, you know, you talked about uh, uh, Southwest Philadelphia, you know, filling up what had been empty shells. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, capital being available for these new businesses. Why, typical banks, I assume, are wary of, of, of many immigrants. How does the Latino Community Credit Union of Durham, North Carolina, do things differently than most financial institutions? Uh, yes, well, it's fascinating. I mean, that is a that's a great story as well. I mean, that is a credit union that was created because initially because of the high amount of crime that Latino immigrants were facing in the community after payday because they had no uh, safe place banks, to put their yeah. monies, especially if they were undocumented. Ew. So this is a credit union that specifically targets people who are low income, who are undocumented, and who don't have a lot of previous experience being a part of a bank. And they not only provide a safe place for deposits, they create um, opportunities for fair loans. They provide support to immigrant entrepreneurs, which is very important. The share of people who are entrepreneurs within immigrant um, communities is much higher than in the native U.S. population. Uh, And they also provide a kind of sense of community for folks. They provide education about the dangers of subprime mortgages, about payday lenders, about rent-a-centers. And they become that source of knowledge and community uh, within, you know, now they have 11 branches across the the state of North Carolina. And that's a fascinating story. So good to hear good news every now and then. And, you know, Trump and others on the right have targeted what are called sanctuary cities. What is the reality? What are these sanctuary cities and what kinds of policies do they have in place? How have they worked out? Well, it's it's interesting, that term, sanctuary cities. I mean, I think that in some ways it's a misnomer because it creates this false impression that 
you know, you won't get prosecuted if you commit a crime or <laughs> something like that, or, <laughs> oh, you know, you'll be given free housing. I mean, all it is is basically a promise to the immigrant community that we are not going to enforce federal immigration law. We know our place. <laughs> we're local. We're local law enforcement. We're not federal law enforcement. And so usually what it means is that, that law enforcement officers or other um, agents of the government will not ask uh, what somebody's immigration status is and will not make moves to have somebody deported and in some cases will not cooperate at all with ICE in holding people um, for eventual deportation. And, you know, people say, oh, it's being lax, it's not being following the law. But the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of these uh, policies for, you know, remaining local and not, not enforcing federal immigration law come from law enforcement who need the trust on uh, the relationship building among members of the immigrant community. I mean, if increasing I'm shares sure. of your cities are people who either are undocumented or who have loved ones who are undocumented or who are just afraid of the police for whatever reason, is they're not going to cooperate when there's a crime. Sure. Uh, and so that is, you know, where some of the push is coming uh, to kind of be clear with members of the immigrant community that we are not out to, you know, be, be de- deport you or your family members or your, or your friends. Yeah, interesting. It's funny how the uh, people on the right, you know, talk about, uh, oh, no big federal government, leave it to the locals. But when it actually, uh, the opportunity is there, they don't like that. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> well, th- this, yeah. this is quite a story. Tell us about the Major League Baseball's uh, Joe Madden and his efforts to restore trust between immigrant and non-immigrant populations of his hometown of Hazleton, Pennsylvania, after the 2006 murder of a white Hazleton resident. Interesting story. Yes. So after after a murder of a white Hazleton uh, resident, uh, a, a person who was undocumented was arrested, later released, and the charges were dropped against him. But that helped spur and kind of uh, in, and kind of bring out and make manifest this anti-immigrant sentiment within the within the city, uh, and the the city was one of the first uh, of several places that passed their own kind of SB 1070 copycat law at the municipal level, and so they. They passed a law that put restrictions on landlords from renting to immigrants and from employers and even people, you know, who were harboring immigrants by, you know, giving them a ride in the car or shelter or whatever it might be. That law was later kind of gutted by a federal court and became irrelevant. But besides that, it created a huge rift, obviously, between the white community and the Latino and the growing Latino community in Hazleton, which is a kind of down-on-its-heels former uh, coal community. Wow. And Joe Madden, who was a kind of baseball celebrity now, he's with the Chicago Cubs, uh, grew up in Hazleton, uh, son of a Polish immigrant, came, uh, came back and asked his sister, hey, you know, where is there's a large Latino community, you know, and his sister who worked with members of the Latino community as a kind of social worker and advocate 
um, she explained to him, you know, what had happened as a result of the ordinance, and he, um, who, you know, had developed a really strong affinity and understanding of Latino culture through his work in baseball, and also he also spoke Spanish, was really sad to hear that, and also sad to hear people that he met in Hazleton blaming immigrants for the economic woes of the town, which, of course, were, you know, long-standing and um, had multiple causes <laughs> over generations that had little to nothing to do with uh, immigration. So he decided the best thing he could do was actually kind of lend his celebrity and some monetary support to local efforts to bring the white community and the Latino community together to help figure out how to create a more prosperous and more uh, connected and healthy Hazleton. And one of the things that out of many that they did was buy a former um, Catholic school and turn it into a community center which, whose deliberate mission was to create a space for people to come together and to get to know each other, people, Latino people and white people, through a variety of different mm. activities, through Spanish classes and English classes and recreational programs for kids and cultural events and storytelling events and potluck dinners and all of those kinds of things that help um, connect and bind a community together. You reminded me of a story when I first moved to New Hampshire in 1981. It was in a small town, and my neighbors, next-door neighbors, had me over to dinner, and they said, well, they'd heard of Jews, but they'd never met one before. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, and it's about y y people fear what they don't know. These situations that you found all across America, how replicable are they? I think that I think that almost all of them are replicable for sure. Um, you know, but I think what's necessary now is the next step should be for the federal government and state governments to look at and to understand us. Okay, so what are we doing to really stake, take stock of what is happening in terms of immigrant integration and where they could be useful in creating policies and incentives and also just publicly talking about the importance of welcoming and the importance of programs and policies that allow for people to be prosperous and create ways for people to come together and get to know each other and work um, work in cooperation to the benefit of everybody. Really? And the federal, our federal policy is really concerned with questions like who belongs, like who gets to stay, who needs to go, and what are the rules and the processes that, you know, we can that help kind of determine determine those kinds the answers to those kinds of questions. But on the local level the questions are how can we all best live together? How can we ensure that we um, you know find ways for everybody to benefit and be prosperous? What can we contribute and how can we help everybody contribute to their fullest potential? Mm. Uh, and I think that if the federal government thinks about ways to think proactively about how to ensure that immigrants find engagement here, find prosperity, and find happiness and, and a sense of security and safety and belonging, um, mm. 
but that's but that's a benefit for everybody. And the question has become, okay, how can the, how can the government play a role in making that happen? But it can happen at state and local levels as well. But it'd be nice if the federal government could recognize that it is, in fact, in our best interest to continue as we've always been uh, a nation of immigrants, and it's made us stronger and made us better. The book is called Integration Nation: Immigrants, Refugees, and America at Its Best. From the New Press, Susan Eaton. Thanks so much for being with us and helping to keep democracy alive. <laughs> Thank you, Bert. It's great to be here. Bye. Yeah, I appreciate that very much. Thanks very much for being with us and keeping democracy alive. <laughs>